bitch. Ah, you know what old Jack Burton always says at a time like this? When you have to shoot, shoot, don't talk. Bitch, the Chicago. Hey everyone, what is up? It is me, Ewan, and welcome to a new episode of the We Love Dad Movies podcast. Um, this is a really fun one that we're doing this week because I get to invite a new guest onto the podcast. Um, Craig from the Diabolical Evil Schemes Done Better podcast is joining us this week. Uh, and we're going to talk about a film that neither of us had watched in a while, but I think just judging from the little pre-record chat we've had then, um, we were kind of like, touched by and really really thoroughly enjoyed so we're going to talk about last of the mohicans this week and yeah please welcome craig to the podcast hello everybody uh very nice to be here with you Ewan. thanks for having me on oh no well thank you for reaching out first and foremost because not only have i gotten to discover your podcast i've also been able to rediscover uh, an all-time banger of a dad movie in the process and i'm glad that you went for this one and not the other one that we discussed <laughs> yeah <laughs> so um some similar themes but not many uh, it, uh, <laughs> uh, the only one I can think of is that there, this opens with a deer hunt. <laughs> um, but yes, uh, when I spoke to my dad um, uh, to ask him for a few recommendations of some of his favourite movies of all time, uh, the, one of the first ones he suggested was The Deer Hunter, uh, which I also haven't seen for a while and uh, quite enjoyed. But uh, one of my uh, one of my co-hosts and one of my dearest friend uh cautioned me against deer hunter and i think that you and i both agreed that it's <laughs> this would be a lighter uh topic to cover it's quite a heavy film and it's long the deer hunter yeah yeah true very true i mean it's yeah it's a wonderful movie but it's also certainly one of those where i was, I was thinking about the process the, the different topics we could maybe discuss about it and i'm glad that your friend intervened because in my head i would be like oh yeah man that bit was really messed up oh yeah that bit man yeah. <laughs> wow, it really cuts cuts to the bone there. But I mean, Last of the Mohicans isn't uh, isn't as um, isn't light when it comes to the thematic weight either. Like it is no. pretty heavy at times. I was really kind of like I, I I was completely wrapped up in it when I watched it um, last night. But yeah, I need to let you introduce yourself, Craig. What is the diabolical evil schemes done better podcast all about? Yeah, so uh, originally the the idea that we had is that we were going to look at every Bond movie and uh, scrutinise the villains in Bond because they're all so outlandish and their schemes are are so wacky uh, and sort of consider how we would approach uh, tackling Bond with the resources that they have at hand and then we would compete at the end to see who came up with the best alternative scheme. But we quickly realised that that could get dull very quickly so we did one bond film we did we did uh, goldfinger and then mm. we moved on to uh, demolition man and ever since then we've just been doing a <laughs> ever increasingly uh, varied films um i think by the by the time this goes out our um body double episode should be out with the, the brain i just watched film. that movie for the first time you, the other week um, technically one of the most accomplished films I've ever seen. Um, yeah. Politically diabolical in many places, but um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, like yeah, very technically impressive. I think it's a that's an exemplary effort from De Palma. If you wanted to look at a movie that was like, oh, what someone was asking me like, what Brian De Palma movie do I watch to get all the De, the Brian De Palma isms? Right. Like, <laughs> Double has pretty much all of them with the split diopters and everything. Yes, he didn't leave anything behind there. Yeah, and even the um, I, I was when we were talking about it, one of my favourite department films is Blowout. 
And that yes. also starts with a fake horror film, which looks seedy and terrible. And then it goes into the real film and suddenly you see all of the Palmer's craft on display, plus the director of photography, whose name I forget, but uh, it's a gorgeous film. Uh, and it it's it looks all the better because he starts with the fake out. So I've just realized I've gotten two De Palma movies confused there. I watched Dress to Kill for the first time the other week, which right, is the one that right. is technically very impressive, but politically yes. diabolical. Um, Body Double, yeah. I think, is actually politically very prescient in what it has to say about Hollywood and filmmaking and, and history and stuff. So yeah, yeah. I just had to clarify yeah, that because I, I completely goofed them. <laughs> Well, we we discussed Dress to Kill in that episode as well, uh, briefly, but I think we'll probably cover it at some point. Um, yeah, I, De Palma, obviously a product of a different time, and I don't think he ever set out to uh, offend. Uh, I think he he was very kind of tongue-in-cheek about all this stuff. But uh, yeah, in, in terms of uh, what De Palma films are watched to get all of his isms in, I think uh, Body Double is another one. You get so much of the stuff in there is very Hitchcockian um but with with that 70s or 80s in this case twist yeah totally um but yeah I mean the podcast is really cool it's a great premise um I know you asked me like to like figure out like a movie that I would want to do Mm. I'm genuinely like I I don't know what it is since the pandemic my memory recall has been terrible so someone asked me for a prompt I'm just like uh so sooner or later i will stumble across a movie (laughs) that's the one that i'm gonna do and at that point i'll light the diabolical signal and great your ranks i was the same when we began i i thought uh, i racked my brains i was like what film can we do um but these days they just flow from me i i uh, have ideas all the time now i was gonna say like working in content creation full-time Great, awful word. <laughs> um, yeah, ideation is like a big thing, especially when you're in and amongst right. the, the, the thing and you, you kind of think. But this is why the podcast is good, because it's a case of like, well, I can look at something that I necessarily wouldn't do for work and I can put more right. personality into it and be like, well, you know, I want to talk about a Lee Marvin movie. We just did an episode on Paint Your Wagon, which is going to go out this weekend oh, wow. uh, of recording, which cool. I absolutely adored and I love Lee Marvin. I'm not sure yeah. that there's much interest in a paint your wagon video on <laughs> on my main jobs channel, but maybe there would yeah. be. I don't know. Maybe I can I can fly the, the banner for for Joshua Logan's. There should be, and maybe yeah. we can bring Lee Marvin back. I um the other we we did Gross Point Blank a few weeks ago, oh, and hell uh, yeah. it, it made me really want to watch Point Blank, so I did, and uh, I, I forgot how amazing it is. It's just incredible. Yeah, I'm obsessed with Lee Marvin. Um, yeah. I think he's my favourite actor ever. I just absolutely bloody adore him. Um, yeah, he's amazing. But yeah, I need to ask you as well the hallowed dad movie podcast question, Craig. Yeah. Um, what to you is a dad movie? So I I, I had a good think about this. Um, you know, I, especially after I, I had listened to your um, you know teaser episode where you explained uh, with Xander what your idea of, of dad movies are, and I thought, you know, what does that mean to me? And I'm the by far the youngest of three. My siblings are 10 and eight years older than me. So uh, they had a big influence on my uh, sort of film education as much as my parents did. And I I had to think about what kind of movies I'd watched with my dad and what kind of feelings I associated with that. I do have a very distinct memory of uh, queuing up around the block with him to see Jurassic Park, which came out Mm. when I was about 11 something like that and last of the weekends came out when i was 10 and uh he absolutely 
watch that with me at the time, me, him, and my brother. And and I was allowed to watch, you know, crazy stuff that I probably shouldn't have been allowed to watch when I was very young. Um, but I think what the the main things that I associate with dad movies, um, there's always some kind of underdog, you know, there's a, an oppressed person and there's a person in authority and they're always quite anti-authoritarian, uh, which my dad really isn't. But I think in somewhere in his heart, he must be because he loves that kind of stuff. That's, that's what he really loves. Uh, he hates Bond movies, which I've always found quite interesting, but maybe that's because Bond represents authority. And I never thought about that before, but kind of the antithesis of a lot of the characters that he likes. Um, but he loves, um, you know, mafia movies. So I think there's always a big family element to those. So I think that's a big important thing for him. He comes from a very large family. Um, and yeah, I think one of the key ingredients for a dad movie for me as well is that there always has to be some sort of prick in power who gets his comeuppance. <laughs> so there's always a character like That's that. That's a great like, example. <laughs> yes, it is, yeah. But there's like, you know, Tim Roth in, in Rob Roy, um, oh Longshanks in Braveheart, um, Joaquin Phoenix in Gladiator. Those are all the kind of films that he loves and that. Uh, I I kind of associate with him, and and one of his, I say his very favorite film is The Godfather. But I think I said to you that's that's the White Whale. We can't do The Godfather uh, right away. Maybe, maybe if I come back one day. But yeah, um, that's a commitment. It's because I've yeah. already watched it the other year. It's like oh, I'm not yet ready for my my Godfather Odyssey. Again. I know. What do you say about The Godfather? But um, another of his favorites that came out when I was the right age to watch it with him when it came out was uh, The Shawshank Redemption. And that is such a dad movie to me. It There's is the it, none like, more dad movie. <laughs> in many ways, I think that that's probably the, the, the top shelf answer that people reach for solely because mm. it was everywhere. Like it was such a yeah. TV favorite. And I think I've like, it was always on like, it was like the typical film for Friday night, like 9 PM movie or something. And like, I know from seeing online that Americans also had a similar experience where it was just on like terrestrial TV yeah. all the time. Which is probably yeah. why it's reputation. Like I, I think it is a brilliant movie from what I remember. Anyway, I have not seen it since my dad took me on like the serious movie adventures of when I was an <laughs> early teenager and like was really like, okay, so we're going to watch a bunch of like classics or whatever. Um, so I haven't seen it since then, so I have no idea how you know whether my opinion would have changed or not. But yeah, I think yeah, Shawshank will definitely be getting broached at one point uh, in the future. Yeah. Um, but yeah, trying to save the, the big hitters. I've, I've, I've gone through a lot of classics this year and I'm like, I need to, I need to measure the tempo. <laughs> yeah. I think if you had an emotional response to Last of the Mohicans, that will be tenfold when you watch the show. show yeah. It's a hugely emotional film. Um, and it, it's very nostalgic as well. It's uh, not, not just of the, the, the kind of the era that it tries to create, recreate, but of the, of the films of the nineties as well. You kind of, uh, it, it, it didn't do great in the cinema, I don't think. And I think we're kind of lucky because it got such a, as you say, it came to TV and it was on TV all the time. And then it got such a like cult following and became, you know, I remember it hitting the, uh, at least the top five of say empires, top 100 films of all time lists kind of every year in the nineties. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it is, yeah, I'm, I'm curious to revisit that one. Um, but I'm glad that you chose The Last of the Mohicans. And you said that yes. that was a movie that you're, you you saw a lot with your dad? 
Yeah, well, he was, um, and my brother, they were both, um, you know, briefly uh, obsessed with it, I think is a, is a fair way to put it. We watched it a lot of times, and I really, the the strongest memories I had of it before rewatching it were of the, the ending sequence, the kind of the chase through the mountains and the... Oh. <laughs> Yeah, it's so good, and uh, yeah, they. Uh, I think that that that's one of the things that really appealed to them about it is that kind of action uh, sensibility of it that you know Michael Mann does so well. But also, um, when I put it on and the music started, that really stirred in me, and I was like, "Oh, I really remember this music now that it's on." Uh, Beautiful score. Um... Yeah, incredible. I was going to say it was a Howard Shaw one, but it's not Trevor Jones it's and Randy Edelman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And that the the main theme, I think, it's called Gael. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it it was it belonged to a, an artist, and I think they kind of repurposed it for the film. I did mm-hmm. make a note of his name somewhere, but I've lost it now. Mm-hmm. But it's such a great tune, and it's really evocative uh, of the film. If I hear it, I again outside of the film, I think I, I will instantly associated with the visuals of that instantly opening. see Daniel Day-Lewis running with his right. long locks through the woods or whatever. <laughs> yeah, and his incredibly long rifle. <laughs> oh, great rifle. Great. I it's mean, I great. love yeah. I'm a sucker for really good costume and set mm. and prop and prop work and I think Last of the Mohicans it, 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 the the presentation here, you know, the epic scale is 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 impressive in and of itself. It's the fact that they maintain that level of detail and authenticity like top to bottom it's really beautiful yeah. i think that's testament to man from what i've read so he he fired the original costume designer uh, mm. they had a dispute on the set i think he was going up to people's costumes and scrutinizing you know the buttons and everything and he's uh he was so interested in the minutiae of everything and he was involved in every department and that i could see why that were great on some people but i think that the film that we got at the end of it is, is kind of a testament to that sensibility. It's it's interesting him applying that forensic lens that he has to kind of the history. Because obviously, you know, when you think of man, you think of neo-noir, you think of thieves, right. you think of Manhunter, um, yeah. you think of um, obviously Heat, uh, and then later like stuff like The Insider and, and Collateral and stuff, which are all kind yeah. of urban movies that are about, you know, <laughs> the character that is the city and, you know, crime yeah. and, and, and all this and stuff. Um, but they're also very soulful in their approach to the genre, I find. And even though yep. you'd think, oh, Last of the Mohicans, that's quite a weird departure for man as a filmmaker, it aligns spiritually with a lot of what I think his films get at and, you know, like cycles yep. of violence, you know, um, you know, revenge. And and, and, and I, I just, I love him cutting to the core of, you know, the, the genesis of like, the American nation and the and like you know going that far back into history, I think it's, I think it's really really beautiful. Um, and I also actually have to ask you because um, you mentioned that you saw this with your dad. Were you, was your family like into um, like sharp and stuff? Because obviously in the nineties, oh, yeah. like sharp's heyday, <laughs> and like we had a lot Massively. of like um, <laughs> Napoleonic and late eighteenth century, early nineteenth century kind of fiction, and then obviously that leads into stuff like. Um, uh, Master and Commander in the early two thousands, but yeah, we we you sharp aficionado. Do you think that's partially why maybe this got a lot of airtime in your house? Absolutely. So sharp was always on. Um, my brother as well is, is hugely into sharp. Um, I lived in Sheffield for a bit, and I kept coming <laughs> down Sean Bean in the chip shop. I never saw. 
Um, Get him to say yeah. uh, bastard aloud. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, sharp um, and Lord of the Rings, obviously very fresh in my memory. But yeah, we were we were definitely a sharp household. Um, I remember watching Angel and seeing Alexis Denisov pop up. And I was like, that's the guy from Sharp. <laughs> and everyone was like, what? <laughs> yeah. yeah I but, mean, um, this, kind of, this kind of fiction was definitely like big in our house as well. Um, yeah. My my dad never read the, like, he never read Horatio Hornblower and he never read like no. um, the, the Aubrey Maturin series, but he, he had a, he, he did enjoy these kind of, these films. I think Last of the Mohicans is really where the resurgence begins in the 90s and then you lead into stuff like sharp yeah yeah and uh i love master and commander as well i think it's fantastic yeah real that next month <laughs> real uh lament that that didn't become a series because uh it it just it it begs to be uh it's it's so great um but yeah definitely a, a sharp household and um you know in terms of what you were saying before about you know man's kind of urban uh, reputation. There, were, I think there were. I, I immediately had the same response. I thought Last of the Mohicans seems like a departure, but then I was thinking about all the parallels that there are. Um, and uh, another kind of historical epic that I'm a huge fan of is Barry Lyndon, and I, I love I, that. I need to watch that. At some oh point yeah, on my list for yeah. a while. Well, so what I love that's a parallel is that man really wanted to shoot Last of the Mohicans with as much natural light as possible, which is one of the things that you know Kubrick employed to make you feel like you were in the era rather than watching a film of the era. Um, and that's something that he again obviously did in Collateral. You know, they, they did the try to use as much of the street light as possible in a different way. Then there's kind of the the romance in, in Impossible situation you know that's a big part of heat as well uh although i do think that the romance plot in last of Mohicans does get sidelined quite a bit at the end uh it's i i um i read that in response to test screenings who felt that the the film wasn't very focused it, it did have some some re-edits uh but i still think it lacks a little bit of focus at the end there because you kind of expect some resolution to that romance to be the you know, you, you you want the the iris out on the uh, on the couple having a kiss or something, but instead you get this. What I think is a superior moment. Uh, don't get me wrong. You know that uh, Chingachgook gets the the final kind of moment there, but then it does feel like that is a shift of focus to me. But you know, it's not not a, a huge failing uh, by any means. It's just a, an interesting thing. So yeah, and the, the, another scene that made me think this is very kind of a, a Michael Mann thing to do is there's a, a break quite early on where you just see everybody playing a game. They're playing like a, a ball game, a ball and stick game, and you get a lot of moments like that in Mann films where you just kind of see a a, a moment where the the characters are going off and doing something fun, and the camera's kind of quite far away and observing it, and it just makes it makes everything feel more alive and like those people are living a real life outside of the plot so i love stuff like that in in his films so yeah i think it, it's although it does feel in some ways like a departure it does still feel to me like this is a michael mann movie mm-hmm. yeah so i'm going to give a little bit of tiny context for people who may not have seen the last mohicans it released in 1992 it was of course directed by michael mann with a screenplay by man 
and Christopher Crowe. Um, it's a remake of the Last of the Mohicans movie that came out in 1936, which was based on the James Fenimore Cooper novel, which um, was released in was first published, I should say, in 1826, and it revolves around um, Nathaniel Hawkeye Poe, who is played in this movie by Daniel Day Lewis, who is the adopted son of um, a Mohican called Chingachgook, played by Russell Means here, an absolutely stunning performance, I think it's brilliant, uh, and he's joined along for this adventure by Eric Schweig's Uncas, who is Chingachgook's uh, other son, um, and it's set during the Seven Years' War, which is a huge, one of the most important conflicts in human history, it's kind of like completely overlooked, I think, in in, in yeah. popular memory, it's it's one of the most like influential formative things. It led to pretty much the creation of the thirteen colonies as we know them. It led to like you know massive territorial redistribution in North America. It's really where we get the start of that American Revolution. Um, and you know, and, yeah. in, in America, it's known as the French Indian War, the conflict that occurred in in, in North America. Um, and the the film itself, uh, it sees it sees Poe and Jim Gatchcook and 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 them getting roped into. The, the French Indian War, which involved both um, France and Britain uh, negotiating their own um, allyships with various Native American tribes, which led to different conflicts. Um, and it really kind of delves into that and that idea of, you know, war and, um, you know, being imposed upon you and like kind of like the ravaging of this beautiful heartland um, for colonial interests and yeah, it's just and it also, you know, delves into themes of like, you know, loss and vengeance and how that corrupts people. And that we get that in the character of Magua, who is played brilliantly by um the immortal Wes Studi, who is just fantastic in this. Um and there's a real attention to detail in the portrayal of the Native American characters, um, who are the centerpiece here. Obviously, you know, there are the the, the colonial figures are key too. You know, we have um the, uh, the the daughters of Edmund Munro, um, who is a Scottish colonel who is defending Fort William Henry, which is a real life battle that occurred during the conflict. Um, and Magua has laid out a vendetta against Munro for an earlier atrocity that Munro committed. Um, and yeah, it's just it's just a fantastic movie. I, again, like I mentioned before, I haven't seen it in a while, and I was watching it last night. And I think apart from some occasional pacing issues but i think that even though the fort william henry sequence i think is beautiful to look at i do think the movie lags in places there when we have the the conflict between the um the colonial militia and and the british i feel like that kind of just ambles its way through things before we get to the ultimate surrender and i love the surrender sequence by the way between munro and, and yeah. the marquee which is just fantastically done uh, shout out to the tiny pete postlethwaite background role here yeah. too um <laughs> And that is like the minor blemish that I have here. I think apart from that, it's just a beautifully realized, proper historical epic that's full of romance, action, some of man's most technically accomplished filmmaking. Um, there are scenes here that are just so impressive, particularly the ambush that occurs after the surrender at William Henry, um, which just gives you one of the most great like wide angle shots in movie history. It's just absolutely beautiful. Uh, and then it concludes with one of the most emotional final confrontations that I've ever sat through. And I think I didn't, I didn't, I didn't have that opinion before I watched it last night. I think before I'd always found it impressive, but I was just totally floored by the, the, the weight of, of like sacrifice and, you know, being consumed and twisted into a monster and like the, the confrontation and like the, um, the way that violence is depicted in this film 
we talk so much about like you know action choreography in movies is almost being like a ballet or a dance um here i think that applies in certain cases but i also think it transcends to almost ritualistic status you know the choreography here even though it's quite chaotic and frenetic at times i feel like with the main characters every motion you could even i think people would maybe accuse that of being like slow or overly choreographed or whatever make it unbelievable yeah here it feels just like it's it's like it's laid out on a tapestry and you're seeing the yeah. motions go into defined stances before you know awful moments of violence occur i just think it's absolutely beautiful um and way more arresting than i remember it being yeah i completely get that like the 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 pace of the choreography feels more deliberate than slow and it's all those pieces of that sort of animation process feel vital and you get a moment to linger on them. It feels right. And it never feels like a fake fight. It always feels like they're, they're right in it. And that climax, I think, uh, as I said earlier, one of the great things about dad movies is you always get the, the baddie who has the comeuppance, but I don't think Magua is that in this. That moment can play this a complete tragedy for everyone involved you know chingach doesn't want to do that but it's what it's come to um and also the sacrifice of um you know the the daughter who who follows the son off the side uh that's heartbreaking as well and madeline stowe's uh reaction to it so pained she's great i love her um so yeah, that 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 is not what I was referring to there. I was talking about obviously the, the colonial officers who also get some horrible deaths <laughs> coming mm-hmm. to their way. But I love that Magua is such a, a sympathetic character. You know, when he tells the story of why he has this vendetta, I immediately thought, well, fair enough. <laughs> to be yeah. honest, um, and and he again, uh, his his betrayal of uh, his people is never played as. You know, he he's a sly or nefarious character. It just feels like something he he feels he has to do um, because of the relationships that they have with the with the colonizers. Um, yeah, totally. So yeah, it's a case of like he he his motivations here, even though they're primarily born out of you know wanting to take revenge justifiably on all the torment and, tra- and 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 torment that he has suffered because of you know colonial encroachment. Um, mm. ultimately when he's trying to justify his actions to the chiefs he's saying well if we do this we can you know become more powerful and gain more influence and actually you know compete for ourselves and trade with with the other um the other, the other nations and and do right. things that way um but the thing that he doesn't necessarily understand in that moment um or maybe he is fully aware of this is that in doing so he has imitated the people that have caused him all that hurt in the first place and it's a nuanced situation because at no point could you ever say well the things that he wants to achieve wouldn't improve the situation of the Huron people in terms of you know being able to better resist France and Britain or being able to better resist the 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 colonies that have been established or even you know rival competing Native American tribes yeah Um, it's just a case of he is so lost in that anger and rage and again like you said before there's a, it's complete tragedy it's never yeah. a case of like ven- of, of like you feel you don't feel relieved when magua dies you feel <laughs> a release of just pure sorrow because that yeah. 
that 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 lineage of, of of trauma and hurt and violence has just shot through and it's all about that you know that interconnected system of things not to completely go on and on but like the idea of um you know native american culture looking at like the the relationship between us and and the environment and everything else and, yeah. and everything being interlinked and stuff there's a through line here there's you know how one act of violence can ripple through and just corrupt everything um yeah. it's it's so it's so well done <laughs> and magua seems to have an epiphany just before the end about that as well you know when he sees the girl getting ready to jump and he kind of in that moment looks like he lets everything go briefly and realizes this isn't what i wanted um so even for him i think he sees before the end that that cycle of violence has led him to where he is the you know the 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 thing you said about the the treatment of native american culture in this i know that's one of the things that my dad loves about it so he loves seeing that opening uh, hunt that they have where they give thanks to the to the deer that they've killed um and i think that was one thing that was really important about this film because it came not too long after last uh, after uh, dances with wolves and where studi was in that as well but his character in that didn't have a name and i think that he had said in an interview um God, it might have been one of those GQ ones that uh, actually I really like. Those are really good. Oh, they're great videos. I love that. Yeah, yeah. Um, that he had heard about Dances Walls and that it was going to be a great opportunity for, for you know uh, Native American actors to to be in better roles because pre prior to that it had always been like Cowboys and Indians, the '60s Western movies. Um, but I think that he he must have felt that this was a step above that. Because here, those characters, as I say, there's a romance plot in this that they really marketed it with. If you've seen the trailer, it's like one man who. It's like um, then when Marge is reading her novels in The Simpsons, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like you got long hair Daniel Day Lewis sweeping up the the sexually repressed English uh, right. like landed gentry daughter. <laughs> yeah, um, but that does take a back seat in the end. And throughout, really, to this great depiction of—I uh, mean, I hope—a uh, great depiction of Native American life. Certainly, I think Wes Studi appreciated it, and you know, um, uh, Chingach Cook, the the uh, the actor who portrayed him, who Russell wasn't means. really an actor, Russell Means, yeah. really an activist. Um, so, for for him to be in it and sort of implicitly give his seal of approval on it, I think that's great, and. Uh, I think we got a lot of media following that, where we had a lot of Native American heroic depictions. Which there was Geronimo, really wasn't there? Which I haven't yeah, seen. Yeah, Studi again uh, in Geronimo. Yeah, uh, there's a Val Kilmer movie that um, my dad and brother loved as well, where he is like a Native American FBI agent. And then we got stuff like the X Files, where the Navajo had played a big part in, you know, uh, the Second World War as code breakers and stuff and that sort of through to wind talkers as well in 2000 yeah wind talkers yeah. yeah yeah so yeah i think last of the mohicans um really important uh sort of kind of landmark in in reappraising or, or not reappraising in in um rethinking the way that depictions of that culture would be depicted in in movies 
it, what I like about it is that it recenters Native Americans in the narrative of yeah. what happened here. You know, you think about the traditional manifest destiny myth that you know people are taught in 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 American history. The idea of like, oh, you know, like we the the, the white the, like the idea of like colonials coming over to the United States and they have the God given right to expand westward and they tamed right. they tamed the wilds and and made this yeah. amazing nation out of it when really they came and corrupted it and, and ruined it yeah. and the idea of like oh we fought tyranny and colonialism but without realizing that they imposed their own form of colonialism on the people that lived there and yeah. what i like about this as well is that it, it 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 demonstrates the the stature and influence and power that at the time the various native american tribes wielded you know Britain and France, in order to gain a foothold in this war, both of them were prioritizing negotiating and making alliances with with different Native American tribes, like the Mohawk, like the Huron. Um, And they were instrumental to that. When Britain goes to fight the United States in 1812, again, one of the main points of their their land campaign is relying on a negotiation um, with a very legendary Native American warrior, um, where they promise that if they succeed in the war, they will give them a unified kind of um, like country that is, that is for Native Americans and stuff. Yeah. They wielded immense power at the time. And I feel like you do, even though in the big battle sequence at Fort William Henry, you have the opposing forces of the British and the French, um, you know, the, the Native American presence is key to all these confrontations. And I, I like the yeah. the ambush scenes in particular, really exemplify this for me as well the idea of the static standing european army who has been taught to fight in open fields or in siege warfare and where you're you're told to you know fire volleys of of musket shot and hope to hit as many things you can across the field or whatever when really we're seeing here that guerrilla tactics are more successful which again is an interesting foreshadowing of you know and, and even though the movie is about the French Indian War, there is some clever foreshadowing here going on with the, the eventual War of Independence—the idea of the crown expecting yeah. labor from from its colonial subjects um, without protecting them or giving them any rights or whatever. But again, that guerrilla element too, which would ultimately come back to to bite the British pretty pretty harshly um, a couple decades later. Yeah, apparently that's not historically accurate from what I've read. Um, you know the independence wasn't a movement at the time but Mm -hmm. thematically it's really satisfying and it feels you know it was right to to foreshadow that in the story and like you were saying in man's urban films the city is like a a character and you really get the sense that the wilderness is like that in this that the the colonists feel like strangers in a strange land they feel utterly lost especially when they're relying on uh hawkeye to kind of trek through this this landscape which looks completely untouched i think that the locations were great but especially when they they're walking up the river and it's just <sighs> rocks Beautiful. and yeah it's gorgeous but it also feels impossibly detached from civilization and when they get to the fort it feels like a, an island it feels such a small piece of civilization surrounded by this beautiful country where you know the the natives have this brilliant relationship with the land uh and understand it in ways that the the invaders aren't even trying to and that i think is really portrayed in this as as one of the reasons why they were flailing uh to to kind of as you say in their eyes tame tame the west uh so 
I really appreciate that about it. Um, There's a really clever scene that kind of exemplifies what you're saying there, and it's when they're on their way to Fort William Henry for the first time, and Magua is pretending to be a Mohawk scout when in actual fact he is Huron. Right. And um, uh, I forget which of Munro's daughters looks down, but they see a bobcat um kind of in mm. in the in the wilderness kind of you know foreshadowing the danger that is literally lurking in the right. trees when they get ambushed right next to them it's a very clever moment because only only they're looking at it the soldiers aren't they're so regimented and drilled yeah. all they know is to how to march file shoot and reload um yeah. and and it, it it's so it's so clear how outclassed and how you know how outthought they are by everyone else and they you know, some of the soldiers defer to the expert judgment of, you know, their Native American allies. Monroe, yeah. even though he has, he tries Nathaniel for sedition, there is at least, you know, an acknowledgement of, of, of the expertise that he brings. Whereas yeah. um, the the man who covets um, Cora, um, Duncan, Duncan Hayward, um, he's kind of like, oh, this is preposterous. Oh, what, oh, what am I doing? This is, you can't be doing that. And um, yeah. It's it's interesting. I like that all that dynamic at play um, and how it's framed. Which again, I mentioned it at the beginning of the episode. The uh, the the bit where this all comes together and just one of the most stunning stunning action sequences of all time. And I have to think that man at the end of it must have gone, "What I've just done something beautiful here." And yeah. that is when after the surrender at Fort William Henry, and then and they're marching to um, Fort Edward, um, yeah. and they just the ambush just like the way that's framed as well where it's like oh uh, one huron soldier comes out takes out a british soldier another one comes yeah. out takes on <laughs> one of the colonialists and and th- th- they're completely none the wiser because they're just so clueless and then it pans back and like it's just the tension swelling and swelling and then you just see the musket fire grew from either side and yeah oh <laughs> so good yeah with, with any kind of american film that involves the kind of hubris of uh you know the the regimented military versus guerrilla warfare must always evoke some kind of feeling of of vietnam conflict which i think mm. is still a big scar on the american psyche the, the way that they sort of marched in there assuming that they could just walk over it and came away realizing that they were completely out of their element and in this, you get not only that, but also this feeling that the kind of Western cultural divide from people and nature is also uh, something that has hurt, um, you know, not not only in warfare, but just our kind of ability to, to live in the world in a way. It's almost thematically similar to the Thin Red Line. I think the presentation right. of the Thin Red Line with, with Malik's is obviously a little bit more poetic, whereas this is properly like a war poem, epic type thing. Yeah. Um, whereas I feel like, you know, you, you look at, at Malik's, it's like a, a kind of almost like interli- interlinking little sonnets that come together to create something yeah. beautiful and arresting, whereas here it's like one epic tapestry. But I think you're right, that, that idea of, you know, corruption of nature and war's role in in destruction and why we are compelled to violence and enact vengeance and, and repeat these cycles um yeah it's it's all it's all really well done and yeah like we mentioned before the choreography kind of 
exemplifies that. I have to ask as well, do you have any particular like favorite bits in the movie that we haven't spoken about yet? Or <laughs> uh I think we've kind of touched on all of them, but mm. you know, I, I really love it, the in the climactic uh, chase, um the way that so ostensibly Hawkeye is the hero heroic figure here and you get to see him kicking a lot of ass you know he's picking up the the muskets that fall and firing them and throwing them down picking up another one um but the in that in that sequence the sort of the fact that Chingachgook um he then takes the the center frame and his his battle sequence there uh with magua is is a big favorite moment for me i think that's just fantastic but also um one of the big features of the the trailer where they try to portray it as a romance is daniel day lewis's line there to to madeline stowe about i will find you and that whole sequence in that uh environment in the waterfall is just incredible i love it i think it's so good it's really and fantastic it's, uh, that bit gorgeous as well uh, really yeah. really great to look at the yeah. part where they get to the huron camp and mm. um nathaniel is just walking in with um chingachgook's uh like war bands and is like kind of just approaching them and then occasionally just slowly the slow just the sudden sporadic bits of violence in that scene are so so well done and the yeah. fact that he is able to push on and then state his, his state you know, make his make his words or whatever. And again, I love the way language is done in this movie. You've got people speaking French, you've got people speaking Huron, you've got people speaking Mohawk. Yeah. And, and I, I love how that all intersects here. And then you have that great bit where, you know, um, Ed, uh, Duncan is translating what Nathaniel is saying. And Duncan in that moment is like, okay, I need to make a sacrifice here because, yeah. you know, um, uh, Madeline Stowe, she, she loves Daniel Day-Lewis, she don't love me. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> um, and he he does the, this amazing, and it is like it. There's no, there's no overstating. Like even though the movie itself isn't excessively violent, the way it depicts violence is harrowing. Um, like it yeah. is truly, it, it keeps enough out of frame to really make your brain do the hard work. But when it does show it as well, yeah. it's still just as punchy. Like the bit where Monroe has his heart literally ripped out of his chest. Yeah. That is really, really. That is. That is a gut-wrenching moment. But also, yeah. it, Duncan's sacrifice, where he is laid on the open flames, yeah. and That's, Nathaniel yeah, has to take the shot to put him out of his misery. It's just um, yeah. it's it's just the how how the momentum of violence, and how difficult it is to interrupt and stop, and how you essentially have to like ebb and flow with it, like it's a, like it's a current of a river. Um, Right. Yeah. Just that, that that moment in particular, I think, is is so well done. Um, and that one, yeah. that 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 knowing look of kind of like resignation, but also respect and reverence for the sacrifice that that has been made and stuff. It's um, it, it's, the way it approaches life and death is so good. And that again, that goes back to an earlier scene with the negotiation between Monroe and the French general, too, where the French general is is pleading with Monroe to spare his troops, but then hypocritically is like, hey Magro, if you want to get them, then yeah. you know, I don't mind. <laughs> then that kind of laying into the the rank hypocrisy of the colonial powers. It's all there's so much going on here. Um yeah. and I think it juggles it all 
pretty expertly. Yeah, ebb and flow is a brilliant way to describe it because I think those moments hit harder because of the restraint before them. You know, prior to that, it's relatively bloodless. You look at something like Braveheart, and it's all about those close-up shots of, you know, gore that are quite visceral. Um, you see a, a scalping in this, but it's it's pretty. Uh, it's from a distance. There's no blood really. And then when you get to those moments, the the fire and the and the um, the taking of the heart, they feel like more. Um, what's the word? They 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 feel more earned and they're more impactful because of the restraint chill before it has to say. So yeah, they're, they're more drawn out, aren't yeah. they? I mean Uncas's death is one of the most heartbreaking things in yeah. in like I mean like talk about it not being a particularly violent movie, the way that they frame that, the way that they use sound, um and yeah. I think it's it's so it, it's it's such a heartbreaking moment because Uncas is just carrying on trying to rescue these two women. Yeah. Um and like is is a brutal brutal death because like magwa like cuts him down the spine and yeah. then like slits his throat as well and yeah. you, the way that the way that the, the 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 lens is posed you've got both of their faces you got westudy's face and uh, eric schweig's face like pretty much you know held together and you see the arm come around from underneath the frame and then blood yeah. spur upwards and i don't know if that was like uh um a ratings choice to to edit that out and make it less mm. violent but i think that it's more impactful yeah. for for the stuff you see out of it because it is it's it's just as it is just as <laughs> gut wrenching yeah and then pulls away to his his lifeless body mm-hmm. falling down the impossibly large and kicked away like it's nothing yeah. that really is right. the mo that is like i mean magua has a lot of like heartless moments in the movie um yeah. But this one in particular, it's a case of like, wow, he is, um, he he does not care for his enemy there. You know, he, there is yeah. no, there is no, he's he's like almost just disrespecting the the body of his fallen enemy. And I think, yeah, like in that moment afterwards, he sees um, the other daughter getting ready to jump off, and he's, I think, it's yeah. those two acts together maybe that has him to have that reckoning with with what he's done. You know, right? Yeah, and it's kind of the opposite of a moment earlier in the movie where uh, Hawkeye insists that the bodies uh, of the Camerons not be buried, that they, where they lay is where they remain, mm-hmm. which Magua, if that is part of, you know, uh, the Huron culture as well, it completely disrespects by, by uh, kicking him over the side there. So that's an interesting parallel as well. Mm. Did you notice by the way? So um, the family's called Cameron. And and his surname is Poe. That made me think of uh, Connor. Connor. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Yeah, I guess I guess Cameron Cameron and Poe. They're quite. They 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 do. Those are names that make you think of like uh, <laughs> like long flowing wigs and and, and yeah. colonial dress. Right. So yeah, I understand <laughs> now why they why they would have done that. Um, yeah. Yeah, we get to that final confrontation, which, like we said before, is just absolutely stunning. Um, and then we have that brilliant moment with when Chingachgook kills Magua again. It's not a triumphant thing; it's just very tragic. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you have that beautiful moment, which kind of is. We have that beautiful moment between um, Poe um, and um, 
when he's not seducing uh, Madeline Stowe's character, but they're they're having that connection. And he mentions, you know, she's being introduced to this new this new way of thinking, this new level of spirituality, which isn't in Britain. Um, and he's talking about the idea of like death and 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 you know the processes of death and like the idea of like we're all returned to the world itself. You know, like the stars are the monuments to his fallen friends. Um, and in that moment, it's, it's it's beautiful and spiritual. And like at the end here, it still is beautiful and spiritual when he, when Chingachgook is is you know laying Uncas's spirit to rest essentially and, and guiding it over to the other side. Um, but it, I like how it's it's still the contrast there is that like you know we had nightfall before we'd be able to bask in the beauty of the stars, and we're now looking at you know the other harsh aspects of life. And it's still very, very raw. And man has that level of melancholy there where it's it's still like it coexists with the the, the scene before, but it's still it's 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 oh, I just think I I like the balance that is shown there. And I think it's it's framed yeah. perfectly. But again, like you mentioned before, the the shift in focus from Nathaniel to Chingachgook, which you know, he is kind of the focus for most of the film. And I, yeah. you know, you could maybe criticize it for being a jarring shift, but I think it's perfect because you, you are fully, it's, it's such a good portrayal there, I feel. Um, and again, like you said before, Russell means his presence, maybe lends extra legitimacy to that as yeah. a portrayal. Yeah, you feel like the studio would have wanted it to end on a kiss, but instead it ends on a a moment in, in a equally important relationship to the film. Uh, which is, is beautiful in its own way, and I think the the landscape is a big part of the feeling that you get from there as well, because they are they they have this confrontation on this very harsh, rocky, perilous terrain, and then it it ends in this moment of stillness where they're looking out over this kind of impossibly vast green that is the kind of country below, and it it feels like they are. I'd say that they are laying his spirit to rest. It feels like he's kind of, uh, you know, almost literally in a in a more serene space than that than they have been for the oh, climax yeah. of the film, yeah. just visually. And it's uh, it's such a testament that they that to man that he didn't end it with a resolution between you know the the romantic uh, leads and instead. In, in in its own way, you get this more romantic ending. Uh, you know, yeah, it's romance definitely more in, loving. Yeah, yeah, doesn't doesn't need to be you know about a, a relationship between lovers. It, a romance ending can be what we got. I think it's a really romantic ending. So. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the film is literally the last of the Mohicans, and it is about yeah. Chingachgook, and I, I think it's it's the perfect way to to end the film overall. And yeah, I think that's about mostly everything I have to say about. <laughs> about Last of the Mohicans. It was one of those films where, I've, I've, again, I've always had a, a pleasant opinion of it and I very much remember liking it and thinking it was like, oh, this is a great Michael Mann movie. Um, but again, it's a testament to when when you revisit movies and like how they, when you at different points in your life, because I must have been in my late teens the last time I watched this. Um, I'm now like in my late 20s um, and the way that you they can affect you and touch you in, in, in different ways and you know maybe you'll take something away from it that you didn't necessarily see um, at a different point in your life and yeah I just um, profoundly profoundly touched by it I just I felt like there was um, 
just like a like a aching love and sorrow for you know this 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 huge ruction point in like the old American West and the mythology of that place um, yeah. before it was a quote unquote country um, and and looking at that and the spiritual side of things, it's just really great and I I think you know Michael Mann. It cements him as, as a very versatile director as well. But like we said before, yeah. it, it feels very much in keeping with the spirituality um, and subtext of a lot of his other films. Like, you know, you look at um, Chingachgook and, and Nathaniel looking out over the cliffs um, here. You could argue in some ways it's maybe a little bit similar to how um, William Peterson is looking out over the beach yeah. in from, from Manhunter, looking out into the night sky and stuff. Too. It's a real... Sim, uh, kind of like um, interwoven approach here to environments, environs, and us as people. And yeah, I think yeah. that's really well done here. Heat as well, you get that ending um, between those two characters who really don't want to kill each other, but feel that they've been pushed into that and that's the only way that they can be resolved. Oh, yeah, kind great of, comparison. Yeah. yeah. And, and even collateral in, in a way, you know, you get the Tom Cruise character just very quietly resigning himself to, to his end on the, on the on the train there. You, you get these great quiet moments um, in in the end. There's no kind of doesn't go out on a bang, not yeah. a whimper either. Just just a real soulful, serene moment of contemplation. One thing I do think about this is it's an, in in with historical context as well. It's an unusually bland character for Daniel Day Lewis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He tends to portray these very idiosyncratic, strange, eccentric characters. Um, but in this, it's kind of a basic lead. It's almost like a, a, a Tarzan figure that he plays. It could have so easily fallen into this kind of white savior, uh, you know, trap. But really, avoids it very well. But even within the context of me saying that it's a bland character for him, his performance is incredible. It's really, it's just, really good. It's I think I've, yeah. I've seen I've seen criticism from people being like, and I think that is more pronounced, like you say, because of the more idiosyncratic, you know, method yeah. performances that he has given over. The oh, and years. he still did that in this. He lived yeah. in the wood in the woods to do this. <laughs> <laughs> and the commitment to the bit is unparalleled. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, like I say, it's a, it's a great performance. I really enjoy what he he gives here, even though. You could argue that in places it's limited and the material is limited in what he is able to convey, but I think he conveys yeah. a lot with less. And what I was going to say before, it lines up with what I think about man is that I don't think many directors do as much with silence and moments of quiet like he does. Um, but other directors in certain places in this film would focus on the noise, would would really focus on like the, you know, the um, make things loud and brash. Whereas man is perfectly content to sit in an echo. Um, and I very much appreciate how Mohicans, uh, Last of Mohicans lingers on those moments of quiet because it makes it that much more effectual. You know, it's not rushing. It's really goes back to the violence, chor- the, the, the choreography too. Yeah, yeah. It'll be really interesting to see how that plays out in Ferrari because what you anticipate from a Formula One movie is that the sound design is going to be all about the engine. But. Mm. I think that we're going to get something different from man uh, because I say that is a recurring thing with him. These moments of tranquility and just, just uh, silence that he, he does so well. So yeah, I'm interested to see what he does with that. 
Cool, yeah. So this has been our little chat on The Last of the Mohicans. Thank you so much for joining me, Craig. This has been Thank you again. absolutely brilliant to talk through and I really do appreciate um, being pointed in this film's direction because it has given me a new appreciation and uh, maybe understanding of, 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 of the, the subtext and, and everything else going on there. It's been, um, it's been lovely talking to you. Yeah, likewise, and uh, look forward to you figuring out what you want to do on the Diabolical. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, where can everyone <laughs> find you and the Diabolical podcast? So we're on all of the social media platforms under the same handle, at Diabolical Pod. Uh, we also have uh, the diabolicalpod.com website. Uh, but uh, yes, please do follow us and engage, and uh, we will... We we're desperate to talk to people on Twitter. We love it. So come 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 and bother us. <laughs> there you heard it, folks. Bother the Diabolical Movies podcast, please, because <laughs> um, it's a great premise and has me rethinking some. I mean, I mean, I I need to think of like because I worry that if I was like, oh, here's how I would have done it. It's like I would have done it better. I would have just killed him. But you got to be more clever than that. You got to yeah. think about like, the different the different kind of watertight waterproofing of the plots and stuff. We do grill each other on those, yeah, and quite <laughs> early on. So we we um we were doing Die Hard, and uh, the the co-host who picked that as the film said, okay, you have to kill John McClane. And I said, oh, we can't make it that because then every film will be how do you kill <laughs> the protagonist? It should be. You want to get into the vault. How do you do it? And then if John McClane's there, you have to deal with him. But how you do it is kind of up to you. And I think that was kind of a, a turning point in the way we approach these. Um, I don't think it'll be a spoiler to say that, because uh, I think it'll be coming out very soon. The next recording session that we're doing is the producers, mm. because I wanted to do something where it was a complete departure, where there's no villain per se, but there is a diabolical plot in the producers in that they they set out to deliberately make a flop musical to to make the money on it and i just thought that would be such an interesting idea for us to think well how, how would we do that mm. because it does fail in the, in the producers so uh it counts as a failed diabolical scheme <laughs> <laughs> and and yeah uh as you say yeah the the trick to it to, to choosing a film i think will be is there an interesting way that I could approach uh, this this plot? And any film kind of works, and we could definitely uh, workshop that with you. Yeah, I'm definitely going to have a think. I'll find something, and I promise the answer will be better than will be better than just I would have been a better shark than than Bruce. <laughs> I simply would not have broken down all the time. <laughs> we just we just did yours, and um, it was my pick, and the villain in that was the the mayor, the mayor, or mayor. Yes. <laughs> the mayor. Yeah. Um, so it was. Yeah. How do you keep the the beaches open? So we all had a lot of fun with that, thinking of various ways to keep the tourism trade afloat in Amity while the shark attacks are happening in the background. Cool. Well, again, thank you so much for joining me. Thank um, you. And please do go check out Craig and everyone on Twitter. Before we go, I want to give a quick shout out to our patrons, though. Thank you to Christopher Darby, George Jackson, Thomas Mulgrew, Shaka, and Josh Brown. Remember, you can go and support the Wheel of Damages podcast on Patreon, where you can get early access to episodes, vote in polls, and lots of fun other goodies like that. But uh, this will be, I'm finding what the next episode will be. I think we're covering Ronan next, uh, wow. which is uh, a banger of a movie. Ronan. I think that maybe has the best car chase in movie history, and um, lots of fun historical subtext to draw from that one too. So very much looking forward to 
getting into that. But yeah, this has been the Wheel of Damus podcast. Thank you all so much for listening and we will see you next time. Bye. See you, bye.